Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. I'm Francis. And I'm Anya, and today we're discussing chapters 38 through 32 of The Amber Spyglass, the third book in the His Dark Materials trilogy. In chapter 30, The Clouded Mountain, Mrs. Coulter flies to the Clouded Mountain and demands an audience with Metatron. <laughs> <laughs> she, I, I guess everybody should know that that actually says Meditator Talks. <laughs> she knows where Lyra is heading to collect her demon, and she is more than happy to share this information with him, the Tater Tots. Uh, <laughs> Metatron, I don't even know what that word is. Looks within her and sees that she is indeed corrupt, vicious, power-hungry, and without compassion or regret, so she can definitely be trusted to betray Ezreal and her daughter. Meanwhile, the authority, a frail, and, a frail and entirely senile angel, is being whisked away from the battle for his own safety. Alas, it's all for naught, as his crystal litter gets attacked by cliff guests. Also, meanwhile... Azrael and his angels use cracks in the foundation of the fortress to break into the world of the dead, which is filled with the flowing river of dust and melancholy marching ghosts, and also the entrance to the big abyss. Right. Oh, that one, yeah. Also, also, meanwhile, uh, Will and Lyra continue to wander in the bad battlefield trying to find their demons. In Chapter 31, Authority's End, Mrs. Tolter brings Metatron to the world of the dead, where Asriel is ready to attack. After a bloody and brutal wrestling match, Mrs. Coulter and Lord Asriel, together with their demons, pull Metatron down into the abyss. Lyra and Will fight some cliff ghasts. Sadly, Tialis dies in this hustle. During a brief respite from the battle, Lyra and Will rescue a mysterious old angel from a damaged crystal litter, only to see him dissolve into the wind a few moments later, seemingly relieved. They run into Yorick, who carries Lyra and Will through the fighting to where their demons are about to get devoured by spectres. Will fights the spectres with the subtle knife, aided by the ghosts of Lee Scoresby and his dad, who have totally been with them the whole time. I promise. <laughs> Will and Lyra grab their demons, make their escape through a window, and then say some brief goodbyes to Scoresby and Parry, who, now having completed their mission, can let their atoms drift apart into the universe. In Chapter 32, Morning, Lyra and Will have a leisurely morning in their grassy escape until they are approached by a group of wheeled Mulefa. The Mulefa carry Lyra and Will back to the village to see Mary, who gives them food and answers their questions. Later, the Mulefa tell Mary that they have something important to show her. After a long journey, Mary sees a stream of beings emerge from a window between worlds and dissipate into the air. 
The ghost of an old woman, before she completely loses her form, talks to Mary and says, Tell them stories. They need the truth. You must tell them true stories and everything will be well. Just tell them stories. I feel like chapter two is the Avengers, you know? Like, (laughs) the characters from this part of the story and this part of the story are finally all coming together. Yeah. General feelings. Everyone's favorite section. Uh, so I really, I really like this bit. Everything comes together for the really good storytelling here. Like, I love that they have Metatron and the Authority dying in the same chapter, but like in two completely different ways. And Will's goodbye with his dad, which sort of brought back things from last book. And Will and Lyra picking up each other's demons was so good. And the tell them stories bit, like it, it all just came together really nicely in these chapters. And I love them. Definitely. Yeah, this is like, uh, it, it feels like one of the endings as the story wraps up is like a climax to a big part of the story, especially, you know, Asriel and Coulter and the authority and all that stuff. And, you know, it's weird, like, I feel like another author would end with this. And it, we are not even close to like, the climaxes for Lyra and Will. So it pulls things together that have been building since the first book, though, like you said. I just wrote that a lot goes on. Like it's it's a lot of bits and bobs, but in a very different way to what we had a few episodes ago, where it was a lot of disparate things that were sort of they were fine, but they didn't really fit together. Here, they were a lot of disparate things, but they're you can see where they're intersecting now, and I really like that overall. Which I thought was so funny because I actually wrote that not a lot happens, but what does happen is very important. Yeah, I do. I love that all the characters who've been mostly off doing their own thing are now in the same place, interacting with each other. Everything is kind of converging. I thought there was a ton of great prose in this section. Like, Mm, Pullman clearly has been building up to a lot of this. And I think... Uh, yeah, there's a lot of sections where you can tell he's just like trying to put things very beautifully to kind of like tie up themes and and really like lean into the themes. Great. So what's everyone's favorite bit? Mine is Mrs. Coulter. Everything about her, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Although I do also love when Will and Lyra pick up each other's demons and like, because that's a big chaotic moment. And but he wrote it in such a way where you can see them having a moment about it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah no, Mrs. Quilty, she's my favorite, and I love, I love her ending. Yeah, I love how she gets to harness all of her past evilness and then do something good with it. It feels a little bit surprising, but then if you like really think about it in the context of the book, it's not surprising at all. It feels very earned. Mm-hmm. I guess my, like, runner-up favorite moment, I love the way that the authority dies in just, like, the most boring kind of, like, off-screen whatever kind of way, you know? Like, it just feels, again, kind of, like, surprising and not surprising, where it's, like, the authority is kind of like an anti-god. He's just, like, feeble, and, and ultimately when he dies, it's, like, nobody notices and doesn't really have a big effect on anything. That's also kind of what I wrote down for mine, which was that I like that the authority is firstly fallible, 
secondly, incredibly frail and old, and you just get to feel very sorry for him. Like, mm-hmm. fundamentally, he's not having a good time. He seems pretty happy to do what beings are meant to do, which is return to dust. This is just kind of cruel on Metatron's side, because of course it is. But it's like cruelty through reverence as well, which I find fascinating. I like that they made him human. Mm-hmm. Humish. His ending of relief of being back is the same as when we see the ghosts dissolve. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And so it doesn't make him a good person. They're all just people, you know, mm-hmm. like the Muleva. Right. Maybe yeah. they do just come from a different world. But also, I think it's important to remember that none of these people are actually God. Right. Like, yeah. Philip Pullman says very clearly, this was the first angel who came into being. Nobody knows how or why he came into being. And it's yeah. really yeah, funny yeah. because they're like, in the previous book, they're like, oh, we can't kill the authority unless you have this special knife. And they just literally like open his can and he fizzes <laughs> away. You know, <laughs> oh no, 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 Don't open the mason jar. Oh, you've let all the god out. <laughs> you let god out. <laughs> now he's flat. He's we'll gone. never get him back in. <laughs> <laughs> it was easy. Put him back in the soda stream. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. The my favorite part uh, is also Mrs. Coulter. I, d- I just really like how it ties together these themes of like what we're talking about with the anti-religious stuff uh, vis-a-vis God. And then also the existential themes, which I'll talk about in the philosophy part uh, around her story. I just love that she's redeemed because we're free at any moment to choose another way of being. And, and that's what she does. It's interesting because somewhere else in the notes, I think somebody put the word redemption and I do not think she is redeemed at all. I think she is still evil and terrible. She just made, she just had this one good thing. Yeah. And I don't think she's a good person at all. She just had this one thing that she cared about. That is an interesting question of like, what makes a redemption? Like is doing one very good, very big thing at the end are you defined by the last thing that you did? Right. I have a specific mm. uh, example here in the book um, where it's when she's walking into the mountain or when she first sees the mountain and she says, it, or the, the text says, it reminded her of a certain abominable heresy whose author was now deservedly languishing in the dungeons of the consistorial court. So she still thinks that he, <laughs> he is deservedly it, yeah. languishing. And this is when she's like on the plan to sacrifice herself for her daughter. So she is still evil. Yeah, she's she's still herself. That's what I really like about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's not a total like Christian conversion, right? Where she's like, oh, I love my daughter and therefore... I'm like a totally different person. Like she's still the same person. Yeah. Um, she just, just made one this, choice. This one choice. Yeah. Which is the, hmm. that's, that's such a good way to write it. I think it's such a real way. And, and I love this chapter because it almost seems if you believe in such things or if the world that in which this take, I don't know, you could argue because of the alethiometer and stuff, but it was almost like fate that she be so evil that she was created to be evil. Because she had to pass this moment with Metatron looking into her. Ooh, that's really interesting. Her her teleology was to be yeah. as evil as possible while still being just good enough to pull this off. 
she's gone through a change of heart, but that doesn't necessarily mean she's actually a better person for that change of heart. It doesn't mean that she's a good person for that change of heart. She's a better person, possibly. It's. I think it's a good point where you guys are are saying there's like you you really need to earn. What am I trying to say? This is like something that always hangs me up in culture where people are like, they say like, don't forgive these people. They haven't earned it. And it's like, that's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is like cutting yourself loose from this bad person and being like, well, your credit rating with me emotionally is zero now. So like, you don't owe me anything. You're out of my life. Um, This is like, that's kind of like what is going on with her. I think it's not that she turns her whole life around, right? It's that she does one good thing. I was going to say, and like Ezreal was there too, but who cares? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, hopefully James McAvoy will make us care in the moment when we see it on screen, but. Mm, He thinks that nobody matters. Yeah, that's right. Nobody nobody matters. I think that I don't have this in the philosophy section. I did think a lot about this, but I didn't like write it out. But I think that Pullman does something really deft here with Azriel. Coulter and Azriel make exactly the same like objective choice and do all the same objective things and have the same objective result. But like their existential orientation is completely different. And I think that like Azriel is a existential failure and Mrs. Coulter is a success. So like Asriel is, is like tells everybody like my daughter like who could imagine having such a child and we need to go out there and save her and like all of that's clearly bullshit and not real and the thing he cares about is killing God and he even says to like Coulter he's like oh yeah we need to go like we'll, we're doing this for Lyra he's like playing a role that is not real and that makes him kind of an existential failure. Whereas Mrs. Coulter is like doing something because she actually feels that way and has like changed her life and made a choice based on the way that she actually feels and is being authentic. I wonder if Pullman meant it that way or if he meant for Ezreal to have also been redeemed here. Because it doesn't, he doesn't give Ezreal nearly as much character as he gives Mrs. Coulter. But I did just want to finish up my waxing poetic about Mrs. Coulter. Just was saying that I really, really freaking hope that they give her some of these lines in the show, especially the one where she says, I wanted him to find no good in me, and he didn't. There is none. Shut the fuck up, Miss Coulter. (laughs) (laughs) That's rough, It's just one of these things where you're like, dude, go get some therapy. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) I don't think therapy exists in Lyra's universe. That might be part of why it's so fucked up. Yeah, I think if somebody brought up therapy, they too would be languishing deservedly in the prison yeah. <laughs> <of the laughs> court. Uh, least favorite part. Okay, I was super annoyed by the fact that it seemed like Lyra and Will are kind of like alone when they need to be and with people when they need to be. And it's just like unclear where people actually are at any given time. I don't know. It's just like when Lee Scoresby showed up, and and will uh not will perry uh perry senior daddy perry um, john john thank you although daddy, daddy perry, perry. <laughs> yep daddy perry is now the name a bit late but it, it was just like wait where have they been the whole time what the fuck is going on it just it really threw me out of the moment um when i was like otherwise pretty engaged 
Mine's the same. I can remember like a couple years ago thinking about the moment where they find God and not being able to place where it is in the book because it doesn't make sense that it's in the middle of the battle because it is this quiet, still moment. Right. But I quite like that. Like, I enjoy that it's a... It's the sort of stuff which happens in battles. Like, just crazy, stupid shit goes wrong because someone's in the wrong or right place at the wrong or right time. I don't disagree with that, but it just felt like they were alone in that moment. The way that he described... I don't know. It just didn't feel right to me. Yeah. And then suddenly all their protectors magically came back. I, I liked it because it gave a tiny bit of stillness and severity to... Sobriety? It's probably better to uh, what is otherwise quite a hectic scene and it's just you get this weird lull where it's like oh no i do i like the tone of that moment and how it works i just feel like a little bit more scaffolding for how they get separated or reunited as opposed to just like suddenly everyone's there and like were they just like sitting quietly not saying anything for the whole (laughs) previous time you know Mine is totally different. Um, it's uh, maybe this is a British thing, but it bothered me how when Will and Mary meet for the first time, like Mary gives Lyra a hug and then she goes to hug Will and she's like, oh, you're almost a man. This all like happens in her mind. Maybe I shouldn't hug him. He's not a boy. Maybe that would like hurt his masculine dignity in some way. I should respect that. And because she respects it, they become lifelong friends. And I was like, what is, what the fuck is this? I don't like this. You're right. Actually, I've completely forgotten about that moment, but I do remember being like, what the fuck is going on when I read that? <laughs> As a lady scientist in her 30s, I feel like I would not be that weird meeting a male person of Will's age. Like, it just felt like, yeah, like super weirdly gendered in a way that was unnecessary. I agree. I would also say it's not. It's not a British thing per se, but also we've got to remember when this was written. It, yeah, it just feels slightly dated. And like, I get what they're trying to do with it. I get what like the point is. And I think it's like either way, it possibly was meant to be clumsy on Mary's side. But like at the same time, I think there is a lot of protecting what is a fairly fragile bloke because he's just you know he's he's going through a lot and like trying to be respected as an adult and she worries that by giving him a hug it might get in the way of that now that's not to say that that's okay or acceptable or really matches up with our modern conceptions of these ideas but i think 20 something years ago maybe more so everybody knows that real men don't hug yeah it's well duh I actually think that this scene would have worked if he'd left gender out of it. Like if she just said, oh, yeah. if I'd met a kid, I would absolutely hug them. But if I'd met an adult, I, agree I wouldn't just that. randomly hug them. Yes. Like if I was meeting a teenager, I wouldn't just hug them. No. No matter their gender. So no. I think if he'd left gender out of it and being a man out of it, yes. it would make perfect sense. Yeah. But because he made it so about the man thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah, I, it it does get, you do get a bit of the whole fragile masculinity thing. I also just like the idea that maybe Mary has just been with the Mulefa for so long. She's like, wait, human interaction. People, what? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, she's a scientist and so she doesn't understand that anyway. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> it would have been better if she's like, she like 
put her arm in front of her face and then like knocked Will around. Yeah, was talking. Drunk. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> said hello in in Seraph or what? No, Seraph is the dust in in Mulefa. Yeah. yeah, that would be much better. Um, my least favorite part. So, there's two things here. One of which I really like a good betrayal. Like I love that in books, and I kind of would have enjoyed Coulter just to be evil to the end. Like that would have like it's completely different. It wouldn't work with the book, but I just kind of would enjoy that story be a little bit more. Like no, she's just a bad person. She's not redeemable. She's like she's morally gray and has been morally gray the entire time. Why does she suddenly stop being morally gray now? Like, I know why, story-wise, but I just would have liked the portrayal. I enjoy that. Mm -hmm. It's much more fun. The other thing that stuck out to me was the tell-them-stories scene, where Mary comes, like, stumbles across the exit to the underworld, and she sees all the ghosts coming out and, you know, becoming one with dust again. And... Yeah, that, that that, that ghost hangs on just long enough to be like, tell them stories! But, like... The firstly, it is the most useless thing. Like she could have used three more words to be like, <laughs> "Tell the harpies that you're going to see when you die. Tell them stories because they want that." I love that. It. Like, yeah, <laughs> I love how <laughs> it's been not so much better. It's so confusing. I love it. <laughs> yeah, but the, in in doing that, it makes it feel clumsy. Like yeah. if you slice that bit out of the story, nothing changes. Mm-hmm. It is. It like it is only flavor text, and I don't like the flavor it's giving me. So... Well, it it does play into the next chapter, but I think you could have had the next chapter without. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah, yes. definitely. I I do like that. Like the entire Abrahamic tradition is like God comes down to Mount Sinai and writes the Ten Commandments, right? So like God gave us the the law, and this is like someone who's died is telling Mary, like, what you do when you die. Like, hey, here's the inside baseball on what happens. Tell them stories. But it's, like, useless. What I like about this is that it's like a game of telephone. Like, maybe the Ten <laughs> Commandments were badly misunderstood. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's what I feel like this is. That's funny to me. And I, I don't disagree with you in any way that, like, this is extra and could be thrown away. It's just like I just see a joke there that I think is funny. I get that. And like I don't I don't think that it being extra means it should be necessarily removed. I just think that if you're going to make that scene, you could have made it more powerful. As it is, Mary didn't need to be there. I thought the flavor was fine. I do kind of like that it emphasizes a different death story than what we're used to getting. Like a lot of cultures have right like mythology around death that involves judgment either you have like mm. anubis weighing was it your heart against a feather right or like which is unfair <laughs> it's a heavy whatever feather. just saying yeah true whatever the christian thing is you know but it's like i think this is highlighting the fact that what really happens when you die at least in this universe right is like there's no judgment all you have to do is tell the truth and I think that's in the story without the scene, but the scene really emphasizes it and how different it is in contrast to most of the death mythology 
that we have. And I, I don't know. It works for me. I like the scene. I don't think it does any of that because I think we got all that already. Yeah, that's my point. <laughs> <laughs> but the funny thing is, it's that uh, Will and Lyra literally set up the deal. Like everybody can know the truth, you know, because they all they have to do is tell everyone. So we don't even need yeah. this in that way. Yeah. <laughs> it's just weird. Though, in a way, like, I think that's super interesting because a thousand years from then, the truth is going to be different anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be a, a even snake if they do biting tell a everyone. girl. In a, yeah, 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 yeah. And also, like, could you imagine they go home and they're like, well, we know what happens when you die. We are 100% sure and we can tell all of yeah, you. Yeah, sure you do. And people are just like, yeah, yeah. sure. You and a thousand like, other crazy people. Well, this yeah. is this actually... This brings to mind something that's a sort of classic problem, which is from storage of hazardous materials for long periods of time. Okay. Now, there is oh, so <laughs> things like um, biologically nasty stuff, but particularly things like radioactive waste. If you store it in the ground, then that ground is fundamentally dangerous. It may not be dangerous on the surface, but somewhere in there is something that is fundamentally dangerous to any form of matter, well, any form of life that we know. Now, the point here is that symbols aren't universal. So even if you put something like a skull and crossbones on it, that works fine for humans. But the things that discover this may not have skulls. They may not know anything about that. It's a glyph, but it's not a useful one. Same for ra just the radioactive symbol. I mean, that's less than 200 years old. Significantly less. I think it's less than 100. Um, you know, how do we make sure it's obviously dangerous for people 100,000 years in the future or beings 100,000 years in the future? And some of the things they came up with were um, like, ch like vastly changing the landscape to something completely unnatural. So, but then that runs a risk of people being interested in the thing that's fundamentally obviously different. One of the major solutions that they came up with was to start a religion. So <laughs> what you do is you start a religion with a set of rituals which enshrines these ideas, figuring that one of the most long-standing traditions that we know of is religion. So if you start a cult, which is essentially the cult about this is the bad place, then that actually stands a chance of surviving. And it could even survive across species contact and across cultures. Now, what that brings, the, the reason I got onto that was because if we have this story of what happens when you die, what is the best way for Will and Lyra to get the most people possible to understand this? And the only answer I can come up with is they start a religion. Yeah, they start their own religion, which is hilarious. Which is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think he knows that. Oh, Pullman would hate no, that. No, I think he knows it. I I think that's part of what this moment is. This is why this is funny to me. This moment mm -hmm. of, of her saying, like, just tell them stories, and then she immediately misunderstands it. Like, this is <laughs> this is how religion works. It's like it's like what you said, it's the signifier and the signified. I mean, though that's the philosophical terms for this. Is like you try to build the signifier of the skull and crossbones to signify death, but over time that's like X marks the spot, right? It's like, oh, mm. shit. Like, this is not what we meant to happen. 
we'll we'll try and I I will try and send um send out the actual article talking about I think it's a ninety nine percent invisible article talking about this problem. Um, but yeah, if 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 we can find it, we'll put it in show notes. I'm sure. So yes, that's my least favorite part. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, problematics. I mean, I think Pullman mostly earns this with Mrs. Coulter, but I do think it's worth like just noting in your head that having a loving mother who sacrifices herself for a child is a trope that holds up the utter destruction of women, you know, for playing the role of the mother in capital letters. But I, I think he earns it because of how complicated she is and how we've been building this up. But it's an unhealthy ideology of patriarchy that, you know, just pointing that out kind of neuters it, I think. Yeah, I think <laughs> BTW, we, we guys. talked about, <laughs> Alan, you and I talked about this on our other podcast, Hallowed Ground Storycast, when we did the um, Tokyo Pet Shop of Horrors, because there's oh, yeah. one of the vignettes in there is also about like a mother sacrificing herself um, right. to save her child. So we have like, a uh, kind of a long in-depth conversation about that trope um there i agree with you that i in general i find that trope troubling and problematic but it works for me here just because of how complex and interesting mrs coulter is as a character and i think because she is so evil and like we talked about before like she's not really redeemed into being a good person i don't know like it i also think she's not doing it to be redeemed yeah you know <clears throat> and that matters as opposed to like the other story that we're talking about where i i feel like that mother does this would be a way for me to be a good mother finally like right, Col mrs right. coulter's Whereas... not like that here yeah her goal she isn't motivated by trying to be a good mom no that's not her obsession one of the things i always loved about miss um, one of the many many things always obviously <laughs> that i've always liked about Mrs. Coulter is that she seems just as confused as anybody that she cares about Lyra. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah because it goes all the way back to Balvanger and her stopping mm -hmm. the severing and it's like something that mrs coulter wrestles with across this mm -hmm. book in a way that I think it makes all of this meaning more meaningful than you were a good mother at the end. So I don't want to reduce this to that. Yeah. And well, and I also think it feels like it comes from within her and not from social pressure. Yes. Which is where a lot of that, like, be a good mother messaging comes from. Yeah. It feels very external. Science. <clears throat> Boo. <laughs> in the, I guess in the chapter 30 I noticed that um, the part that Caitlin talked about where this guy deserved to be in a dungeon because he he, he knows about more than three dimensions I just, existing I know we've talked about Mrs. Coulter a lot but fuck I love her it's so good he's literally like <laughs> infiltrating the people whose side she used to be on, she's like, yeah, fuck that what guy. What an asshole for doing science, <laughs> that guy is. I hope he's rotting. <laughs> I made sure of it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I put him on the rye bread diet. Um, 
Multi-dimensional rye bread. Not that that'll help. Yeah, you be like, roll this up, <laughs> loser. Um, <laughs> so like, it just um, seemed to me that when she's in there and she's like going around the, um, what's this place called? The Clouded Mountain. Uh, there's like unfolding weird dimensions. And uh, I was like, oh yeah, isn't that a thing? And like string theory, which was big, more big 20 years ago than it is now that there's more than three geometric dimensions and they're rolled up very, very small for the strings to be able to do their thing that make the, like a multiverse approach to reality possible. I don't understand how that works at all, but it's like a thing that I've read about and, and like, okay, I guess if you say so priest of physics, I, I believe <laughs> in you. I want that instead of doctor, eventually. I, I just want to be, be called priest of biology. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. That was, the, that was science that I noticed going on. I, I felt like because the Clouded Mountain is able to move in between worlds, we've seen it in different worlds throughout this story, that I was like, oh, there must be like... It, do, it doesn't do that through windows. It seems like it's able to do it by its nature, and it has something to do with this like multi... more than three-dimensional reality that it that it is a part of and so it's like has hyperspatial capabilities that seemed related to string theory in a way that i was like oh i i see you folded in more science into your fantasy i i did do a little bit more reading about string theory just off the back of what um alan had written so the original string theory was in the 70s and that required the the question they were kind of trying to ask, and again, I am not a theoretical physicist, so grain of salt here, guys. But I believe the problem they were trying to solve was if you have you have gravity, gravity is a fundamental force. You in order to have a force, you need to have a force particle. So that we don't haven't detected it, but the theoretical force particle would be a graviton. However, what can happen is if you run the maths on how gravitons must work, given that gravity works under this theory, then when you collide two gravitons together, you get infinite energy, which breaks everything. And usually in maths and kind of theoretical physics and stuff like that, when you're getting infinities, the maths is wrong somewhere. So what they did is they came up with string theory, which was basically saying, okay, we can make this work if we consider instead of fundamental particles to be themselves per se, we have sets, we have these one-dimensional strings, which when they interact, they essentially don't, um, they don't produce any energy, I think, or they, they don't they don't behave in quite the same way, which feels a bit fudgy, but... And then they built everything kind of on that. And it turns out you needed, like, ten, 10 dimensions originally to have that working. So you have, like, kind of four classic dimensions, uh, three dimensions plus time. And then you have another six sort of hidden dimensions, which only the strings really get to perceive, and no one else does. But in order to be able to collide in the right ways, you need those extra dimensions. Now, that was started as i said in the 70s and kind of was really big in the mid 90s to late 90s and then as alan said it's sort of fallen off like there were some extensions to string theory so you had m theory which i believe brought in another like 10 dimensions or seven dimensions mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um 
in order to try and do some cleverer stuff. But fundamentally, string theory really struggles with dark matter, at least from what I read and from what I remember. And we we have pretty functional theories of dark matter already, so we're getting already into um, Philip Pullman doing the sort of Deepak Chopra, just in invoking <laughs> random bits of science to to sound like it's like current and you're like well these things actually like don't even add up with each other right. and that's fine if you are a theoretical physicist and listening to this podcast and want to email us telling us how wrong we are we will tell you how you can do that later because <laughs> i'm probably very wrong but yes that's all the science i have finally we can do religion right yeah <laughs> Right, so I'm going to mute my mic, and I'll be back in half an hour. Great, great. yeah. <laughs> I'll be halfway through the first thing. Uh, <laughs> Touche. I thought there was some interesting language that Mrs. Coulter uses when she talks about her love for Lyra that I wanted to highlight. She says that her love was like a thief in the night, and her love was like a mustard seed. Um, and that if you were raised in a church would like shout out to you because thief in the night is uh, a way that Jesus is described in the book of revelation. It's that his, when he comes the second coming of Jesus, he will be like a thief in the night to people who um, don't believe in God. Jesus also talks a lot about mustard seeds to his uh, disciples. He says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, then your faith can move mountains. So you can have a little bit of faith and it can make a big, big difference in your life. And I think she knows exactly what she's saying when she says that, that this small amount of love has like completely changed her and she didn't expect it at all. So I like how Pullman folded that language that she's so steeped in into her description to Azrael. Uh, I had no idea. I definitely knew it was a biblical reference, but that was the only context I had. I guess Philip, do you think Philip Pullman reread the Bible as he was writing the series or do you think he just had it beaten into him enough? Oh no, wait, yeah, he went to Catholic boy? school, it was beaten into him. I I think he used it as his alarm clock. Just to remind him to wake up hating the world a little bit more every day. Yeah. The we get more stuff here on Metatron. He he gives this whole begats to Mrs. Coulter. <laughs> like, okay, dude, we get it. You were a human. What I think is interesting about Metatron and what other podcasts may not give you is that he's part of a uh, Western tradition <laughs> called Hermeticism where Metatron is a guy named Hermes Trismegigus, uh, which I'm probably saying I, you wrong. You just made that up. There's no way Trismegigus is it's, real. I'm saying it wrong, I'm sure. Trismegistus? Yeah. yeah. I, this is one of those okay. things that I've read way more than I've heard. Um, okay. No, that's fair. So It just it sounds Christ ridiculous. Magistus? Yeah. So it, to be fair, you could have been making up every single religion section we've <laughs> ever done on this podcast, and I would have no fucking I idea. I think we would get more letters about it if, if I was doing that. I think, I think five Alan people in, who listen to us. Alan <laughs> invented teleology purely for this. I did do like, that. Oh, guys, I, I'm just going to make, make them say the word telos a lot. It's going to sound really funny. <laughs> I right, watch this. <laughs> But I like Trismegistus. Yeah, I can't even say it. Trismegistus. <laughs> Tris 
is uh <laughs> it, it means like three times a magus uh like once twice three times a lady but like <laughs> but like gandalf the famous right? original <laughs> Uh, he's like a very powerful wizard, essentially. Um, and this is like Hermes is like the god in Greek mythology, you know, of, of like he's the messenger god, right? He's the guy who has wings on his feet. He goes from the gods down to the humans and he has all the knowledge of the gods, the secrets. He's the god of language. So he has like the inside knowledge on everything. And of course, like, that's what wizards are, right? They're like people who know secret knowledge. The tradition that grows out of the dying Greek religion around Hermes is called Hermeticism. And it's kind of like the Gnostics in Christianity being attached to the literal persona of wisdom. These Hermeticists get attached to Hermes and uh, consider him to be like someone that you should try to be like. Secrets that hermeticists are looking for is like alchemy, astrology, mathematics. <laughs> One of these things is not like the others. <laughs> well, you know, like, I guess numerology is what I should say, right? Ah, okay. <laughs> um, and so like, Metatron is believed by mystics in the Abrahamic tradition to be in charge of all those same things in service to God. And he talks about this like to Mrs. Coulter. So like Metatron is in charge of chemistry, astronomy, meteorology, and the study of the hermetics into these kind of things to like secret knowledge of the universe is what leads to like actual science in Western history. Isaac Newton was a hermeticist. And Pullman's use of Metatron, I think, as the enemy of science is ironic in this way. Uh, but it's rooted in a kind of science that was characterized by like the hubris and superstition of people, like experimental theology in the magisterium, or like the kind of hubris that creates the subtle knife. And so I, I like the way that Metatron is folded into the story is kind of what I'm saying. And, and him being the kind of the head of the magisterium and their version of science. All right. Now we get to go into the abyss. Yay. Everybody's favorite place. So in the book of revelation, the final book of the Bible, uh, Satan is thrown into the abyss for 1000 years. During that 1,000 years, Jesus rules over the world with a perfect government. It's staffed by his followers from throughout time. So like people like King David all the way up to like Billy Graham. That sounds a lot like like Metatron is kind of in that place of Jesus, right? Like this, this is what Azrael's trying to stop is a never-ending kingdom, a, a so-called perfect government. But in the Bible, Satan is thrown into the abyss and the Antichrist and his partner, who we haven't really talked about, called the Whore of Babylon, are thrown into hell. So the abyss and hell are two different places. The Whore of Babylon in the book of Revelation represents a church that is devoted to the worship of the Antichrist, who is like a human, right? And the leader of all the people who don't like God. He, as a foil to Jesus and the church of believers who are described as his bride. So 
Jesus's church in the book of Revelation is called the bride. So this is a bride versus a whore. I always found the idea of the church being married to Jesus as like a little bit creepy. A little bit. Like <laughs> Okay, okay. A, a lot creepy. Yeah, when I was a kid I was like, "What? What does this mean?" It's so weird. I mean, don't they like eat Jesus every Sunday? Yeah. Like I think that's the least of their problems, the marriage <laughs> thing. They are a bit strange those Christians. I read in this story, uh, Mrs. Coulter's kind of false sexual interest in Metatron as kind of something like the attitude of a sex worker, you know, like their professional attention. It seems like Pullman is casting her in a version of the Whore of Babylon, is what I'm saying. He's turning all this stuff inside out. And so in Pullman's telling, Metatron, Asriel, and Coulter go down the abyss in the same way that like Jesus clears out all of the evil on earth before establishing his perfect government. It's not going to be the like perfect thing that the Bible talks about because that's already been kind of established as a bad thing, right? That's one reference that I see here with the abyss. The way that Asriel and Coulter force Metatron to fall into the abyss for me recalls the way that Jacob, wrestled god or wrestled the angel in the darkness like never letting go no matter what it cost him and jacob wrestling god was referenced at the end of the previous book with will and his father wrestling in the darkness right uh, and then at the same time asriel and coulter both know that they're going to die before they fight metatron they have like a long talk about this they're not coming back and they know it um, mm -hmm. They know that they're going to sacrifice themselves. And for me, this also recalls the sacrifice that is demanded of Abraham, like with his son, Isaac, that we talked about at the climax of the first book. Asriel and Coulter sacrifice themselves to destroy Metatron. And for me, that kind of braids the three biblical references at the climax of each book into this one moment of Abraham's sacrifice, Jacob's wrestling, and Satan's banishment into one moment that kind of ties all of these climaxes together in a way that I thought was neat. So going back to this Abraham thing, there is a early existentialist philosopher named Kierkegaard uh, who... Fabulous name. Soren Kierkegaard. You could tell that he's definitely... Uh, Spanish. I think he's Dutch or something. There are a lot of double vowels in there, so yeah. Dutch seems right. The O has like a weird line through it. Who knows how to say these things? Um, he wrote about the same, the Abraham sacrifice and God demanding all of that of him and the choice between murdering his son or denying his God, the choice between protecting his son or trusting God's promise. And his point when he like lays all this out is that both of these choices are bad, but also both of the choices are good. Like either one that he would have chose, you could make an argument for. And, and the point of that is that there's no clear choice for him. And that's how our lives are. Like the world is not filled with binary moral choices that are simple to like shake out. Circumstances are out of our control and it's confusing. So what we can choose is to be authentic to ourselves, Kierkegaard says. And 
Mrs. Coulter can't uh, change who she was in the past, but she has a choice about it in the present right now. And she chooses to use her past as a tool to authentically express her love for Lyra right now and save Lyra from Metatron. And she's not choosing to play the role of a good mother or trying to redeem her past selfishness. Her choice is an act of self-expression, I think. And for Kierkegaard, this is like the bravest thing that we can do as people. He called it the leap of faith. And so in Abraham's case, he made the choice to trust God no matter what, and his faith was rewarded, and Isaac not being sacrificed. Mrs. Coulter literally leaps to her death on the faith that she will save Lyra from Metatron. And in both cases, the parents make a choice that saves their children. So I think this is kind of an intentional uh, reference that's happening here in the text. And finally, I got to, if we're going to talk about existentialism, I've been waiting and waiting to cart out John Paul Sartre. Everyone's Yay. favorite existentialist, the only one I've actually yeah, read. Maybe the <laughs> existentialist, right? Possibly a mistake because that was a dour week of my life. He is very depressing. He's very French, and it's a deadly combination. <laughs> you just said the same thing twice. Yeah. <laughs> sorry do continue about Sartre <laughs> his, uh, one of his major philosophical insights is called facticity uh, or throneness these are made up bullshit terms kind of like the skull and crossbones thing that are a little bit confusing but there's no other good word for them um, the idea is that all of us exist in circumstances that we cannot control and did not agree to up front, right? That's actually quite true. Yeah. <laughs> when you were born, like, turns out... Nobody asked me. <laughs> it basically just means that life is unfair. Um, but it's not just social circumstances. <laughs> it's personal, like, too. It's fucking unfair. Truth. <laughs> so, like, Will cannot control his horror at violence, right? He cannot control the nature of the subtle knife as a weapon. He cannot control that he must be the knife bearer. And all of that is like Will's throneness in Sartre's philosophy. These are, facts are a part of Will and he can't change them. So one time, this is like exactly what Caitlin was saying. Sartre said, life begins on the other side of despair. I hate that he still kind of speaks to me. Oh, it's totally true, though. <laughs> like, come on. That's just not fair. I, I think that part of Will's journey has been accepting all of these facts about his life, right? And they don't really make him very happy about his circumstances. But that's what Sartre meant in that quote. Like, you have to accept your facticity to even be able to begin living. Because he didn't mean that everyone has to experience despair to live we have to reconcile uh our personal throneness before we can make any choices at all that's the point that he's making and so will tells the ghost of his father i can't choose my nature but i can choose what i do and that is i love that oh bit. it's so good it's sartre's existentialism boiled down to a single sentence i mean that's yeah. it's all there and even even without that, like, even if you knew nothing about existentialism or anything, it's just 
so good of his character because he was so worried that all he was was a killer. Exactly. And he and he didn't want that. I I like that he realized I can choose to be something different. Yeah, because the uncontrollable facts of our life shape us, but we get to choose how we react to those facts. That's the point of existentialism. Will accepts that he is the knife bearer, but he does not accept what everybody else, including his father, has told him about what that means. He does not accept that he must be a warrior and a killer. In the previous book, his, his father told him, you cannot fight your nature. And this would seem to be Will doing exactly that, but instead it's Will realizing that he has the power to define what it means to be the knife bearer by taking responsibility for his uncontrollable fate. So like for Sartre, your sexuality does not define you. You define your sexuality. Like your physical ability does not define you. You define your physical ability. So it, it that doesn't mean that you have the power to change those facts into something else or to accept like all the unfair teleologies of society, you know, around like your ability or your sexuality. It means the way you live your life defines who you are and defines all those facts about you, not the other way around. So the fact that Will has the knife doesn't mean that he's a warrior. The way that he is the knife bearer defines what the knife bearer is. So when Will tells his father, I can't choose my nature, but I choose what I do, he's defining what it means to be the knife bearer. He's transforming his life into a choice instead of an inevitability. I think Mrs. Coulter's doing the same thing, by the way, with her whole choice around Metatron. She could just fall back into the old, like we said earlier, the she could have been like the queen of the universe, right? Mm-hmm. She could have just given into the teleology of her life, like... It's like you said, Caitlin, like it all led to that moment where mm-hmm. this is like the only way she could have done it. But at the same time, she could have made a different choice and like just continued to be the same person. But I think she makes like a really authentic choice that defines what her whole life is about kind of retroactively. It wasn't about Lyra until she made it about Lyra at the end. Mm. And that was a choice that she made. It wasn't a choice that made her. That's very inspirational. <sighs> Sounds terrible. <laughs> Sounds, it's more inspirational and less depressing than anticipated based on how this conversation started. Yeah, I just don't want all the responsibility for myself. I'm with you, man. Like, I read existentialism. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, this is like every minute is another chance to turn it all around. And that's just way too much pressure. Like, I just don't want the ability to turn it all around, please. Well, maybe I'll just have a nap. I would prefer to be defined by my past. Yeah, I'd rather be defined by... Why can't I just be part of a system that doesn't suck? How about that? <laughs> why can't I just have accepted that I'm the worst? Yeah. I don't need to change. Nature should change. Exactly. <laughs> and that's the end of religion. Forever. Forever. We've I mean, threw it, it down a hole. <laughs> yeah, we did throw that down a hole. So I think yeah. religion is over. Yeah, so I'm confused about this. I'm Mary has a dream about an old lady and she's trying to describe it to her friend. And I'm like, why are we spending time on this? Who is the old lady in her dream, do you think? I don't think we ever get an answer about this. I don't think we do. I like to think that whoever it is or whatever it is, it's the same force that is 
answering Lyra's alethiometer and like helping Lyra. I know the rebel angel leader is named Zephania and is a woman, whatever that means for angels. And so I was like, maybe it's her, but I don't know. I just thought she was dust. Yeah, I like that it's dust. I, I understand that maybe it would make a sort of sense for it to be Zephania, but I don't think Zephania, that sounds wrong. But whatever. Um, I don't think she knows Mary, but then she right. does show up later. I don't know. I like it better that it's dust. It is the sort of deus ex machina of the whole thing, isn't it? It is kind of just a way for, like, an excuse for the Mulefa to have known where the kids were. Yeah. But right. I still like it. I like that within all this sort of anti-religious story, it's not necessarily anti, let's say, spiritualism. Right. There's still mystery. Like, yeah. Yeah. There's still, yeah, there's still mystery of how, it, like, the fact that we don't really have, get an answer on God in this. Yeah. Or, and that sort of thing. Well, um, I mean, I think that's what dust is, but. Which is, again, very um, Spinozan. I mean, an- another, not quite the same, but similar point comes from um, early process philosophy i'm trying to remember the two guys names but they were they were working in the 70s and essentially their idea was well they they were doing process philosophy and the god that they came up with which was sort of presupposed by the way that they initially thought conceived of process philosophy was sort of a a non omnipotent but fairly well all-encompassing god so a god that knows everything and is everywhere and but can't do anything which makes him fundamentally pretty indistinguishable from the spinozan god in any way that matters i mean process process philosophy i find in general fascinating mm-hmm. like it, when you get into the the more modern variants which say well you don't actually need a god for this all to work because you kind of already have said well seeing as we're taking a naturalist perspective god isn't particularly necessary you you come to the again it does it does all these elegant things of saying well do you need to know where all of the electrons are in your seat in order to not fall through it no because for the level for the process that we're looking at for the level that we're looking at you don't need to know all these things and thus unless you're actually concerning yourself with the idea of god which we kind of can't, then you don't need to care about God. It's like, ooh, that's kind of elegant. These are kids' books. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Nominally, yeah. No wonder parents got so mad in the 90s. I just wanted to quickly uh, refer to a line from, I think, last episode, or maybe the episode before, chapter 28, where when... Mrs. Coulter and Ezreal are talking and she has that weird aside where she says we should have gotten married but then they just sort of actually have a real conversation for a little Mm -hmm. bit and she says I can't bear the thought of oblivion Ezreal sooner anything than that I used to think pain would be worse to be tortured forever I thought that must be worse but as long as you were conscious it would be better wouldn't it better than feeling nothing just going into the dark everything going out forever and ever and that's what her fate is Exactly what she feared the most. Mm. Kind of fitting, in it? Yeah. She will eventually starve to death. 
Well, then I guess maybe she'll be a ghost in the abyss. But she'll be yeah. stuck in there. Yeah, she's never going to get out. Yeah. Like, her particles are never going to get out. It's the three of them forever in nothingness. Yeah. See, this is the fan fiction that I want, is, like, fast forward 10,000 years, Azrael, Mrs. Coulter, still and Metatron, they're still falling. At this the point, they've like, <laughs> they've, like, made up, become yeah. friends. They're just holding hands fights. so they don't get separated. Yeah. Th- that's literally the play that that Sartre wrote about what hell is. It's like four people in the afterlife forever, who the four of them are like designed to not get along with each to piss each other off in like tiny ways. And like that's what hell is. Hell is other people, <laughs> and like three of them trapped together forever is the worst. Hell is other people. Yeah. God, Sartre, you just get my soul. <laughs> See, I feel like hell, it's Metatron is going to be the worst off in that situation because Azrael and Coulter are just going to like get more and more into each other, I think. They actually and like each other. Have to, he's just going to have to sit and watch them be like, you know, go through their like, I hate you. I love you. Let's make out, right. you know, over and over again. <laughs> I really need somebody to ask Philip Pullman, like, what? is going to happen to them in there like do they dissolve but still stay in the abyss like what ha- i need i need answers you just got them, them all falling it's like hey guys i wrote another poem metatron's is like i don't want to hear your fucking poem as <laughs> <Right>. real <laughs> none of them were good you'll never have any talent no matter how long you fall falling doesn't make you a better poet it just makes you down further <laughs> i would watch that sitcom I was going to say it'd be better as a radio play, but... Okay, so our next podcast is going to be a eight-part mini-series. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Conversation between four people all falling through space the entire time. I like it as a radio play or like a, a student play where it's just three people sitting on a black stage in black clothing. Yes. And it's all in the mind. That's exactly what I was imagining. But like in the Olivier, so they're all around you, but it's just them having this annoying conversation and getting more and more annoyed with each other. I love this. Yes. God, if this is great, that would be peak like indie theater. <laughs> It'd be so good. Okay, well, that wraps us up for this week. Next time we will be talking to two, we'll be talking about um, chapters. 33 to 35, um, our penultimate episode of The Amber Spyglass. Although, actually, maybe we'll have a wrap-up episode. Who knows? Well, we um, still have it, the TV show. Oh, yeah, there is that. Yeah, and, and definitely the TV show. If you like our show, take some time to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at StrangelyLiteral. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at InferiorCaitlin. I'm Francis, and you can follow me on Twitter at Francis Windrum. Follow the show on Twitter at MOTPod. If you need more than 280 characters to speak your mind, send your email to contact at hollowedgroundmedia.com. And remember to spend your life as a cesspit of moral filth. It may come in handy one day. One. Two. Three. Four. Great. Question mark. I want you to know I pointed at all of you. (laughs) This is why I want to do one of these in real life. Just one of them. (laughs) I I can't bring all my shit to England. No, no, we rent a studio. I just want to see your cold, dead eyes as I fuck around in the... (laughs) Ah, gotcha. (laughs) 
Okay. <clears throat> In chapter 30, The Clouded Mountain, Mrs. Coulter flies to... Could you not edit while I'm reading? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's going at the end. <laughs> and be one with their beloved Hester. We drive yes, away. Sorry, I agree. Sorry about that. <laughs> General feelings. Everyone's favorite section. Those are two different parts. <laughs> oh, oh. Sorry, that was not meant to be sarcastic. I genuinely thought you... <laughs> I was really confused. It's okay. Anyways. It's okay if people are old. It's when they're crazy. That's not good. We on the Measures Let's of Truth play. podcast support Roe v. Wade. Just want to say that. Yeah. I love I love the crazy timestamps that are going to be in <laughs> yeah. these podcasts. Because it took us like a year to read this book. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. So people are going to be like, wait, when was this? Uh, my, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm going through puberty. Um, <laughs> Doing a will. Yeah. But yeah. because it was so much about a boy versus oh, a man. Right. She doesn't do this with Lyra at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, she and Lyra did already know, know each other. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we all yeah. talked there. We said the same thing, though. <laughs> <laughs> spider priest. Spider priest. spider priest. You can just go around absolving all of the spiders <laughs> of their sins. <laughs> Again, later in a different chapter. Are you going to say something, Caitlin? I wasn't. It, it wasn't a serious. It was just sarcasm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay to make fun of me that's what makes the podcast good <laughs> um, uh, but I might be reaching there I don't know definitely reaching good yeah <clears throat> I was gonna don't say worry. I feel like that's definitely in there <laughs> oh this bread is so long and hard yeah you know that's <laughs> We read different subjects. <laughs> alienated all three of our French <laughs> listeners. Life is so terrible. Oh, mon oui. I am so I am so sorry. Somehow it's the Brit that's not being the worst here. <laughs> it's okay. I'm American. We hate everyone. And everyone, everyone hates, hates you. You. Yeah. you can't hate me first. I hated you first. Um... <laughs> Why is there? I just scrolled down and there's like an essay in blue. What is happening here? Oh, those are just all the quotes that I liked. Just oh, the off okay. chance that okay. I wanted. Yeah, no, it's just text directly. <laughs> it's just from like, the book. I'm sorry, do we have another hour worth of podcast here? I mean, I Wonderful. could just like read Philip Pullman, but I just, yeah, I don't know. At the end of it, in the, in the outtakes, it's just the entire chapters that we read. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and we have to get drunk and watch the Golden Compass movie with Nicole Kidman. Oh, we do God. need to do that. Is Nicole Kidman going to join us? I'm, yes. I'm actually way more <laughs> interested in that her. now. <laughs> I mean, we could, we could, we could just send an email. The worst that they can. Say I guess we well. could try. I never thought of that. I, I would. Know. If Nicole Kidman was here, I would have so much anxiety that I would not show up. 